Welcome to the Atlanta Foodcast by Georgia Organics. I'm Mary Elizabeth, Georgia Organics Communications Director. For this week's episode, we're excited to bring you a rich conversation and Q&A between two paramount leaders in food sovereignty and farming, Leah Penniman and Matthew Rayford. This segment is a replay from our recent 8th Annual Farm to School and Early Care and Education Summit. Before we get started, though, a few Georgia Organics announcements. Mark your calendars. We're going to be celebrating farmers virtually on Thursday, May 27th for Georgia Organics Annual Awards. You can learn more at georgiaorganics.org awards. This is a free member event celebrating all-star farmers in Georgia. And get ready to party for Serviceberry season with Serviceberry Fest ATL on June 3rd. You'll catch amazing chefs and beverage folks creating Serviceberry-based bites and drinks. You'll even catch ATL Foodcast guest host Kiana Upton with a Nourish Botanica pop-up. Get your tickets and details on Facebook by searching Serviceberry Fest ATL. To kick off this week's episode, we have a quick intro from Georgia Organics Farm to School Director, Kimberly Deladonna, and then our very special guests. Leah Penniman is the co-director and farm manager of Soulfire Farm in Petersburg, New York, and author of Farming While Black. Matthew Rayford, the chef farmer, is the owner and farmer of Gilliard Farms in Brunswick and the author of the recently released Breast and Yam. He's also a Georgia Organics board member. Their conversation centers around fostering a love of the earth and growing food in the younger generation. They talk about food sovereignty and share a passion for preserving ancestral agricultural practices that honor the earth. They're both prominent in regenerating the soil and advocating for food sovereignty in their communities and beyond. Please enjoy this thought-provoking and motivating conversation and Q&A. Hello, everybody. I'm Kimberly Deladonna. I'm the Farm to School Director at Georgia Organics and the Chair of the Georgia Farm to School Alliance. And I'm excited to welcome you to the eighth Farm to School and Farm to Early Care and Education Summit and the first ever virtual summit. So you think we'd have made it easier with a gathering you could attend from our home bases without the stress of travel and that early morning to late night crazy conference schedule. But no, not us. We figured if you're into serving children or food systems improvement, you probably like to do it the hard way. So we just threw a whole new online platform at you. And instead of our typical two-day summit, we've got five days now of amazing and irresistible content with fantastic speakers and can't-miss sessions. It's ambitious, but that's how we do it in Farm to School and Farm to Early Care. So this first ever virtual summit has been crafted by an incredible group of Georgia Farm to School Alliance and Georgia Farm to ECE Coalition members, led by our summit chair, Abby Chaddick of Georgia Organics and Georgia Farm to ECE Coalition fame. The summit planning group has been phenomenal and how could they not be with Abby and Diana Myers of DECAL and Ashley Dowling of Georgia Organics keeping the bar so high. So please join me in acknowledging their dedication to making this gathering great for everyone by dropping them a note in the chat. Thank y'all for being so awesome. So Georgia Organics and DECAL are really proud to offer you five full days of motivational, educational, and thought-provoking content. I've got to roll the credits for our generous sponsors, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, Jamestown Properties, the Georgia Department of Early Care and Learning through a USDA Farm to School grant, the Georgia Department of Public Health, the Alice Hufford Richards Foundation, Small Bites Adventure Club, Sodexo, the Highlander School, Pearl Academy Math and Science Institute, the Georgia Watermelon Association, and the Little Ones Learning Center. Three early care and education centers are on this list of 11 sponsors. Three, almost 30%. And I'm just humbled and honored, not surprised by the support and leadership of our amazing Georgia ECE providers, because that's what y'all do. But very thankful for your generous support. 
So here we are at the eighth Farm to School and Farm to East East Summit in the midst of a global pandemic and complete COVID burnout. Yeah, over 250 people registered for this event and we've had really excellent attendance at our sessions so far. And this is in keeping with what we've seen from school nutrition staff, ECE providers, educators, Alliance and coalition members throughout this whole pandemic adventure. As COVID-19 continues to turn our world upside down, the resiliency, innovation, and perseverance of our early learning in K through 12 communities just inspires us to do better in light of what we're learning. The summit is a celebration of spirit and what I like to think of as pandemic positives. Local farmers are offering solutions to supply chain interruptions for ECE and school food purchasers. Gardening is offering so many early learning programs, the opportunity for safe enrichment activities and gardens are safe spaces for students and teachers to practice social emotional skills and manage pandemic related trauma. At the same time though, the seemingly insurmountable challenge of inequitable access to the resources has become more apparent and more aggravated. Educators and nutrition professionals are our frontline workers addressing these critical issues daily. And we have so much to learn from each other and this great opportunity to support and leverage each other's work. And that's why we gather, why Summit is such an important and valuable use of our time and why we all love it so much. So our entire planning committee hopes that this event pumps up your pandemic weary spirits and sparks enthusiasm for our collaborative work. And thank you for joining us. Thank you for your expertise. Thank you for sharing your energy and for the hard work that y'all do in service to Georgia's communities. Okay, so now for the good part and talk about pumping up our spirits. We have our amazing keynote, Leah Penniman here for an interactive session. First though, I'm really excited to introduce you to somebody that I find especially inspirational. So as an advisor serving on the board of directors for Georgia Organics, a farmer who does it the way it should be done, and our colleague in the world of teaching students all there is to love about growing and cooking food. Matthew Rayford fills my heart and my brain with all the deliciousness that you would expect from somebody with the title chef farmer. So Matthew grew up breaking the dirt and trading crookneck squash for sweet potatoes, raising hogs and chickens, and only going to the grocery store for sun sundries. After a military career and then graduation from the Culinary Institute of America in New York, he returned to the farm in 2011 to continue the traditions of his Gula Geechee heritage and to create an authentic farm to fork experience for locals. He received certification as an ecological horticulturist from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and he served until recently as the program coordinator and associate professor of culinary arts at the Coastal College of Georgia. In 2015, he and his partner, Joe Van Sage, opened the Farmer and the Larder on Newcastle Street in Brunswick, Georgia's historic downtown. And that was an incredible destination. I enjoyed a wonderful meal there one night. Matthews appeared in Southern Living, Golden Isles, Paprika Southern, Savannah Magazine, and is a frequent presenter at food and wine festivals throughout the country. And he's in the process of releasing a brand new book called Breston Nyam, Gula Geechee Recipes from a Sixth Generation Farmer. And we're going to give one away to one lucky person who completes the summit evaluation. So I'm very proud to introduce you now to chef farmer, Matthew Rayford. Hello everyone, how's everybody doing today? Um, I am very humbled and honored to be here. I have uh, been a part of Georgia Organics now for over a decade now that you reminded me of when I got here <laughs> um, to Brunswick, Georgia. Um, I am super stoked uh, about our connections that we are making uh, through this pandemic and the amount of community that is coming together to really try to galvanize and make things happen. Um, and I will definitely say Georgia Organics Farm to School has definitely uh, been uh, definitely rallying 24-7 uh, around that cause and making sure that those things happen. Um, today we have the fantastic Leah Penniman that is going to be talking to you all today from Soul Fire Farm and talking about the mission that is uh, coming up uh, and, and what it's going to take to, wow, mother soil nerd. I love all of those uh, terms that are, are being given 
and the way you describe yourself, uh, Leo. Well, first, let me give you a quick little background on Gilyard Farms and why uh, farm to school is so important to me as a, a as a Matthew Rayford as a chef farmer, and that is because Union School uh, House was built on our property in 1907. And from 1907 to 1955, it was the only place uh, for people of color to go to within about a 20 mile radius of our farm. Um, and so those old sayings of, I had to walk up the hill and da da da, da there are still paths that are still cut through the woods here, um, so to speak, that you can literally walk from some of the other communities like Myers Hill Road and the like that's like four or five miles away. Those paths are still used mostly by hunters now, but um, were the original paths that the kids used to walk to school. And one of the really interesting things was reading some of my great grandmother's letters and realizing why this school was put on this farm was because of the fact that uh, my uh, great grandmother Florine wanted to make sure that as those children were doing those long walks, um, and that they were able to have a place to eat. Um, and so this was farm to school before there was a USDA, farm to school before it was even a thing um, that needed to be talked about. It was already done for the community here at Gilyard Farms. And so you can look up the history of Union School on Gilyard Farms, and it's just an amazing little one-room schoolhouse um, that we are uh, now getting ready to turn into our educational adventures of taste and start holding uh, farming and culinary butchery classes um, inside of by the year's end. And a lot of that also has to do with the fact that inside that house, there was home economics that was taught, uh, how food is, should be harvested and when it should be harvested and all of those things. And one of the things that I've seen become extremely popular, so to speak, over the last few years or the conversation is becoming really strong as STEM um, and that's science, technology, engineering, and math. And in some places they're calling it STEAM, which is science, technology, education, arts, and math. And so on our farm, this was already being done because everything that, oh, what stream? I gotta, I can't, somebody's gonna have to tell me what stream is at some point, but um, these things were already a part of the curriculum from the very beginning. Um, and the reason for that was because it's extremely important to understand our educational connection with our food connection. Um, I, you know, and a lot of us on here might have heard about the bill that is being passed or has been passed in California for all the students to be able to have access to free lunch and how um, the USDA is looking to see if that can be done across the United States. I don't know how that works, but I know that we have a lot of kids that need to be fed more so than we've ever had at any point in time of history. So this farm to school Georgia Organics Conference is extremely important, especially in this state of uh, pandemic still um, here. So I am definitely a part of this conversation, looking forward um, to hearing more um, from all of you. I see a lot of the things that have happened in the conference have just been fabulous, amazing, and over the top. And I, we are looking forward to any questions that you all might have. But all that being said, I would like to uh, introduce Leah Peniman and I would like to introduce her by using her mission statement that uh, that is on her site. And it's just, it's just an amazing way to talk about um, the work that uh, is being done, needs to be done and continuously needs to be uplifted. And uh, that is Soul Fire Farm is an Afro indigenous centered community farm committed to uprooting racism and seeding sovereignty in the food system. We raise and distribute life-giving food as a means to end food apartheid. With deep reverence for the land and wisdom of our ancestors, we work to reclaim our collective right to belong to the earth and to have agency in the food system. We bring diverse community together on this healing land to share skills on sustainable agriculture, natural building, spiritual activism, health, and environmental justice. We're training the next generation of activist farmers and strengthening the movement 
for food sovereignty and community self-determination. And what better way for us to uh, welcome Leah Penniman, if we can all give her a really quick round of applause. My sister, um, my good friend, um, and I am still, um, this pandemic threw me off because I had looked to come to see you all last year. So I don't know how we gonna do it, but 2021, <laughs> I am double vaccinated. I'm ready to make it happen. But um, please everyone just give her a round of applause. I love the clap clap that you put in the chat. And let's welcome Leah Penniman and let us talk about where you see farm to school and yeah. what you see the community activism becoming a part of that conversation. Ashe, well, thank you, Chef. Um, it really is an honor to be beside you. I just have so much respect for all that you do and all that you are. Um, and I wanna start by, you know, metaphorically and literally taking off my shoes because to me, you know, the South is holy ground. It's, it's hallowed ground uh, where you all live and work. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the legacy that you all provide. Uh, we, up here in the north in upstate New York and beyond consider ourselves part of the returning and rising generation of farmers and we are very uh, humbled by the legacy that you all put forth that we get to build upon and am excited to be having this north-south conversation about what it is to connect our farms and our schools. So I can't take you all to my farm just now because distance and COVID and all that. Um, but I, I do wanna take my farm to you for a moment. And so while I give a little overview and introduction of my thoughts, I'm just gonna be scrolling through some photographs of what the land looked like uh, pre-COVID because those pictures are a lot cuter. You can see everybody's face. But where I wanna start uh, building off of what Chef said about this importance of the connection between farm and school is this teaching that actually came out of, uh, David Sobel was the first researcher that I, I read um, that bore out empirically what I feel in my soul, which is that we protect and defend what we love, right? So the research shows that if you take young children and you're hoping that they will care about racial justice, you hope they will care about food, you hope they will care about the earth, and what you do is bombard them with statistics about dying polar bears and the rainforest being cut down and, and all of that. However important and true, if that is the only thing that you do when they grow up, according to these longitudinal studies, they will not have, they will not have behaviors that are any more environmental uh, than their peers who are not exposed to that information. And in fact, in some cases, they will have more despairing behaviors where they have learned to assume that everything is falling apart, therefore, what's the point? The thing that correlates with young people growing up to take care of one another, to take care of the earth is falling in love. And the way that you fall in love with the food system, the way you fall in love with people who might be of different backgrounds, the way you fall in love with the earth is through direct, contact. And I think that's why it's so important that we connect our farms and our schools, because young folks of all ages, when they have a chance to, you know, hang onions in the barn and look fly while they're doing it, when they have a chance to cook a meal for their mother, when they have a chance to pick flowers um, that they grew and provide it to their teacher, when they have a chance to teach adults who may be older than them and, and, they, and, and authority figures how to plant a turnip, uh, when they learn how to provide for themselves, there is a sense of connection and pride that transcends any list of facts and figures. Now, I will add for those who uh, would misinterpret my remarks to say that we need to brush over the hard stuff is that when you combine the two things, falling in love with being fully informed about the things that are harming what you love, um, you have even more uh, impactful and forward-thinking behaviors as an adult. Uh, but, the, but the foundation is to fall in love. Uh, so I wanna say a little bit about how we at Soul Fire Farm think about this. And you know, just a disclaimer, we're not alone. You know, we're one of 
hundreds, if not thousands of land-based projects that do overlapping work. Um, so I share all of this with full acknowledgement of the, the beautiful work of, you know, farms like Truly Living Well and the Detroit uh, D-Town Farm and uh, Katatumbo Farm Co-op and High Hog Farm, you know, we're not alone. But what you can see here is one of the three pillars of our work. So the first pillar of our work is to grow a whole lot of food and medicine. And that might sound obvious, but there's uh, a lot of sort of farms out there and we are, um, you know, trying to be a, a farm farm. And what that means is we take care of 80 acres of traditionally Stockbridge, Muncie, Mohican territory, it's unceded territory. And we grow fruits and vegetables. We raise uh, pastured poultry and goats, uh, honey, mushrooms. And this food is all grown using Afro-Indigenous ancestral practices that capture carbon, that increase biodiversity, you know, that call the atmospheric CO2 back into the soil where it belongs after years of being exiled from industrial agriculture. And we do this through raised beds, cover crops. Uh, we do it through perennial polycultures and no-till systems compost and mulch. And these are practices that come out of an African agrarian tradition. And the soil gets better every year, the biodiversity gets better every year. And then all this food gets boxed up and delivered to people who need it most in our community who are survivors of food apartheid, who pay whatever they can afford down to no money um, to receive this weekly delivery of fresh food to their homes. And Layered on top of running the farm, which is of course a big enough job in and of itself, uh, are the education programs. And I know this is where our interests really overlap. Um, our very first education programs that we ever did were for young people. And the way that came about was uh, we were you know, busy feeding the community, doing our doorstep delivery. And the parents, especially the mothers, were saying to us, you know, our babies, are getting harassed by the police in the summertime because they don't have activities, they're not in school, so they're outside just being kids on the street. Um, and it's causing a lot of problems, a lot of disruption in the community to have our youth be criminalized in this way. So is there anything you can do uh, for the children? And what we ended up creating was our, our Youth Food Justice Empowerment Program uh, which welcomes young people out to the farm to learn, you know, cooking and farming and leadership and community organizing. Uh, the most popular of this is, you can see actually pictured here right now, is the Liberation on Land week-long youth camp, uh, where young people come and it's a rite of passage. So it's also infused with a lot of um, African traditional uh, cultural practices in addition to the farming, a lot of art, uh, you can see here the young people are carving their ancestor staffs to learn how to communicate with their ancestors. So what um, was really powerful about this, these youth programs is one, the youth never wanted to leave. We thought this would be a one-year program because uh, it is a rite of passage and they graduate and move on, but they just kept coming back, coming back. So we now work with youth for a three-year cohort before um, cycling to a new cohort. Uh, additionally, we had an arrangement with the Albany County District Attorney where they actually created new legislation to allow um, young people to opt into an alternative to incarceration program. And this was very important, this diversion program, because it kept a handful of young Black men um, out of juvenile detention for ostensibly, you know, doing things like loitering or not going to school. Um, and instead provided them with a leadership training course and uh, their record to be wiped clean upon graduation. So the youth programs became the foundation for all the other programs that we later created at Soulfire Farm. Uh, we now specialize mainly in farmer training for black and brown aspiring farmers um, who are interested in this type of regenerative agriculture, perennial agriculture. Um, so we have our week-long immersion, we have online programs, we have Soulfire in the city garden beds and more. And then um, the third major area of our work is organizing. And um, as I'm sure you all have, have been exploring, you know, the food system is really quite unjust. Um, hunger and diet related illness disproportionately impacts uh, people of color, especially children. Uh, there is a, a bleed out of land from our communities. There, um, 
a precipitous decline of black farmland ownership, a genocidal displacement of indigenous people from land. There is also the mistreatment of farm workers. So all of these issues need to be addressed at a policy level and institution level. So we are very honored to be um, actively involved in helping get some new community institutions off the ground, like a land trust that makes land available in the Northeast, uh, like Black Farmer Fund, uh, which provides non-extractive capital, um, as well as nationally with the Heal Food Alliance and the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, who spearheaded the work on uh, legislation like the Justice for Black Farmers Act. So I want to, um, that's an overview of our work, and I just want to circle back to what I started with, which is really talking about how we protect and defend what we love and how uh, what I think is so important when we talk about the relationship between farms and schools is the relationship. And this was a really, well, there was a really poignant moment for me around this, around this love when I was studying agriculture in Ghana, West Africa. Um, I've been very blessed to be able to study agriculture both in the United States, in the Northeast, as well as in Haiti and Ghana, and Mexico, Vieques, and, and to learn these techniques and bring them back. And my teachers who are these um, women in the community called the Queen Mothers, they really challenged the way of thinking that I had brought with me from US agriculture. And they said, you know, Leah, is it true that in the US you would put a seed in the ground and you won't sing, you won't dance, you won't pour libation, you won't say thank you to the earth, and then you expect the seed to grow. And when I admitted that that is often the case um, in our country, they said, well, that's why you're all sick. You know, you're all sick because you treat the earth as a commodity and not a living being. And I've been carrying that with me because we try very hard to remember that the earth is a relative and to remember that we as human beings are the younger siblings of creation. That means the owl is our elder brother, right? That means the tornado is our grandmother. It means the mountain is our grandfather. It means that the rivers and streams are our big sisters and brothers. And so as a younger sibling, our job is to listen and learn and to be humble um, and to love and to know that we are loved in return. And that's what keeps me going in this work because I'm sure you all know like farming is not easy and organizing is not easy. It can be very tiresome work, um, but it is the love uh, between us as people, between us and the earth that fuels us. And it's also that love that we hope is the legacy that we pass on to our children. Did you just stop right there? Yeah, yeah. That that was my that was my concluding sentence. And so I think we get to open it up for questions. Okay, and I was like, oh my any, god! If they don't have any questions for you, I have a lot. So make sure I'm in line. Oh goodness! Well, I I I I love the the drop the mic on that one. I I was like I was sitting there like, wait, did she just was that done? Like, but what I love about that is you are very concise on all the things that you all do and how you go about doing it. And I have to thank you for that. Um, because oftentimes people walk away with the questions because they didn't understand everything. You know what I'm saying? They're like, man, they gave me so much information. You were more like, boop, 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 boop. All right, drop mic, I'm done. Ask me some questions. So um, thank you for that, um, please. Uh, if there are any questions that any of the panelists would like to ask, please drop them over in the chat um, or raise your hand if necessary or, or put it over, not in the chat, but in the Q&A area. And Kimberly Belladonna will, um, will be uh, doing, uh, making sure that we do that. Well, oh, Leah, you already have one. Leah, I am returning to Ghana in September with my daughter. Are there any places you believe would help me show my daughter the beauty of our connection to the earth. I feel like I'd be a horrible tour guide because <laughs> the way I ended up in Ghana was with a little name on a slip of paper and a couple hundred dollars in my pocket as a younger um, adult. I ended up in a very remote village called Ubrapajikisi outside of Somanya in the Eastern region. There's one truck that goes there a day, pickup mm -hmm. truck and no running water and no electricity and a whole lot of farms. So um, 
and I was very, very fortunate to be welcomed and uh, to build a relationship. So I've had a chance to go back several times. So all that to say, that's not really a trail that's easy to follow. Um, but a general tip that I will give you from my time in Oaxaca, where I lived for six months studying, was to go to the market, go to the farmer's market and uh, get to know some farmers, buy things from them mm -hmm. and chat it up and see if anybody is willing to have you out to their farm to volunteer. And that is a really good way to get off the beaten track and get to know like the real salt of the earth people, the campesinos, the paisans, is to meet them at the market. So uh, Aaron has a, a, a loaded question, I believe. Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing your response on this, Leah. What is your challenge to us working in farm to school in Georgia? Chef, I'm going to put you on the spot for that one because I, my personal feeling is that it's not up to a guest to tell people how to run their house. So y'all mm. are in Georgia mm -hmm. and very familiar with farm to school. So I would love to hear, um, Chef, if you're willing to say what, what you think about that. Oh, wow. Well, I would, what I would like for people to, my challenge, excuse me, is for more people that are in farm to school to big up, stream, stem, whatever it might happen to be, as being one of the main uh, ways to teach um, children, because it's it's all encompassing. Like agriculture, whether you're whether you're growing it or cooking it, it's all STEM. Like you have to use science, you have to use technology. And even if you go back into the early 1800s, they were, they were still technological advances that got us to where we are right now. So with this state being an agrarian state, it seems as though um, farm to school would not be so hard um, to implement. And so my challenge is that those that are working in farm to school figure out ways for our educational programs to be more inclusive because not everybody can be a doctor and a lawyer. Um, and not everybody wants to even go to school for business. Like, let's really find out about what these young kids want to do so we can like grow that. And one of the things that we're, here's one of the interesting things that we're missing right now in society. We're missing carpenters. We're missing electricians. We're missing plumbers. We're missing welders. All four of those, just those four jobs alone, make actually make, especially if they own it on their own, make the same amount of money as a doctor or a lawyer. I mean, anybody called a plumber to come to their house and do any kind of work? Well, guess what? If someone knows how to do plumbing, they can they can very easily transfer that into irrigation. You know, so I think we need to make sure that we look at all the transferable skills that can go across. And thank you for that, uh, Dr. Erica Holman Hill. That um, that can that are universal and not just so uh, so you know kind of blinded you know with blinders on um, I, you know I want to be able to to go from here to Soul Fire across to uh, Detroit come back down to Louisiana and plant rice go out the I want to be able to do all of those things but only you can do all of those things if you have a skill that can move around and 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 a skill that you don't have to you know, hope that you can get a job with, you know? And I think farming is one of those things that people have always needed. And I think the only reason I'll use myself as a prime example, the only reason that I left the South is because I grew up in a South that, that still exists, but more overtly, more covertly now than overtly when it was when I was a child. And so, um, yeah, I mean, if, if farming's the deal, which is really becoming the deal, I mean, think about solar power. I saw, I saw solar um, on some of those pictures that, that um, you had up there. Even that alone is like a, a field that still, like Georgia's like behind on solar. Like how, why are we behind on solar folks when we have kids that wanna learn how to do stuff like this? So that's my challenge. Oh, we got a couple of more questions. Um, here's a good question. Uh, it's a very interesting question too. Leah, how did you obtain, acquire the land for your farm? Can this be done 
on donated land or through community organizations, this would be amazing for Atlanta. Land, yes. So a little bit of context, it's real, real hard to access land because there's been an assault on black and brown land ownership historically. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that 40 acres and a mule was a broken promise. And despite that, you know, black farmers were able to purchase almost 16 million acres of land by the early 1900s, but almost all of that is gone, both because uh, landowners were burned and lynched and forced off their properties for the audacity of uh, leaving the plantation behind because the USDA discriminated against black farmers leading to foreclosures and most recently because of heirs property exploitation. So I'll, all that to say, it makes sense that this is a question and people shouldn't feel bad that it's hard to get land if you didn't inherit land. Um, most people who have land, they have it because they inherited it. And the way that we work around that is, as you mentioned, um, a few things. One is if it's possible to do land linking, and I, and I imagine there are services that exist in the South that I'm not aware of, but land linking is when a rising generation farmer hooks up with a farmer who is getting ready to retire, who may not have anyone to pass the farm down to, and they arrange a work trade or a lease to own situation or some other uh, partnership to ensure that that land stays in farming and stays in the community. Now that is very, very important work because uh, before we can even think about gaining land, we gotta make sure we uh, stem the, the uh, wound and, and stop bleeding out the land, right? Another thing to look into is land trust. Uh, there's a powerful national coalition called Agrarian Trust and the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust is a member. Uh, but they have a really creative model where they are, they are a 501c3 nonprofit that's accepting donations of land and then setting up a legal entity called a 501c2 uh, to manage each body of land independently. So working with your local land trust or reaching out to agrarian trust is a way of finding properties that have been donated that might be more affordable. Um, and then the last thing I will mention uh, with a little asterisk that the USDA has been an agent of oppression in our communities is that we are holding out for passage of the Justice for Black Farmers Act. And with it, um, hopefully a very thoughtful indigenous consultation process. But if that were to pass and to be acceptable to our communities, it would provide uh, land access for uh, what they call socially disadvantaged farmers. Um, so that's something to keep an eye on as well. As far as our land in particular, we're in a, a very rural area. The land is quite affordable. So we were able to save money from uh, my husband's a builder. I was a teacher. We were able to save money and purchase the land. We were a little naive in thinking that that would be the most difficult part. Uh, it turns out land here is less expensive than developing land. So to put in the well and the septic and the electric and build a house and all that uh, was really the, the real expense. And so we had to borrow um, some funds and also really take our time saving and spending in order to, to get to where we are now. But that was our strategy. Oh, awesome. And one, and I'd like to uh, add on to that also. Um, if I, I don't know if everyone is uh, paying attention to some of the words that Lee is intentionally using, but uh, I, I'm going to say it outright. Once you own land, there is work that has to be done 24-7 on that land. And oftentimes I have seen uh, where people have been super excited about becoming farmers and getting into farming and then realize that it is not a job that you stop doing. Like you don't, you don't stop feeding the chickens. You don't stop worrying about the hogs. You don't stop worrying about like planting rice. You don't stop, you don't, you never stop thinking about what's going on. So it's not like a nine to five. And so I've seen several uh, bright eyed and bushy tailed and thinking that it's sexy to wear Carhartts um, and being well coiffed, run in and all of a sudden realize, shoot, I just busted my hand open, you know, and things like that. So just pay attention to what Leah was saying is like, they put in some work, like they bought some land. And what's extremely interesting is in, uh, in the state of Georgia, if anybody wants to look for land or farmland, you would be quite surprised at how much land is actually available. However, comma, meaning more to follow, that land is rural, exactly like Leah said. It is not connected to Atlanta. 
It's not connected to Macon. It's not connected to Athens. It's not connected to Savannah. It is rural. So you're not connected to some necessarily major farmer's market that you can, like you have to really look at farming as a business, um, which is, or look at it as an educational front and not just, oh, I'm just gonna run out here and grab some land and start doing this thing. It, it needs to be, and, and also think about the skill sets that Leah spoke about. Like she, she was a teacher and still is a teacher, an amazing teacher. So curriculum building is something that's part of her language. Her husband's a builder. So building and understanding permits and all of those things. So I just, I want everyone to understand that yes, it's, it's great to want to go into this, but it is work. And if you don't know things, like you said, even, even they were, like she said, slightly naive on, on, uh, on, on some of those things. And like, even like where I'm at, I'm in Brunswick, Georgia, and I always get people like, man, you are out there in the country. Well, I mean, yes, my farm is out in the country, but I'm 15 minutes from the beach. Mm, there's some trade-off there, right? Um, and I know where there's almost a thousand acres of land that's located right here. People have been trying to sell for the last 10 years since I've been home. But the reason that a lot of people aren't buying it is because most people have the mindset that it needs to be developed into housing or something. Um, and that's not what's getting ready to happen if you are involved in this. Um, so yeah, I could I could go down that that rabbit hole. Very no, I quickly. appreciate you saying that, Chef, because um, sometimes people confuse my love and enthusiasm for farming with an idea that I'm romanticizing it. Right, you're and not. Like you said, I woke up panic in my heart, 3 a.m., being like, oh my goodness, I forgot to go catch those chickens that had found their way and so they're going to be eaten by an owl. Headlamp on, outside, go find the chickens, put yes. them back in, back to bed, can't get back to sleep. And that's just how it is. It's, you are married to the land. You're you are married. really, really committed. And it is, yes. is really no joke, but it is the right life for some of us. I, I, mean, right. I couldn't imagine it another way. Um, but you do have to be ready uh, you know, for that marriage, if you're going to jump in. And a lot of folks will ask me, like, like this question, you know, how do you get land? But as you mentioned, the first step is actually to learn some skills. Mm -hmm. You got to before, have you, before you dump your life savings into some land, make sure you got the skills and you enjoy those skills. Right. There you <laughs> and, go. Then, and then you get the land after there that. You go. There you go. <laughs> okay. We have another, another question and it is, um, what is your advice to black and brown immigrants who have been Americanized and connecting to their ancestors through farming? Ooh, that I, I yeah. have for that too. I, I'll, I'll start it off. I'll no, start. you go ahead. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. So I was raised on this land. Um, there was a point in time where most of the land, even the land that's, that's fallow right now where houses are, was all connected to farming. And when I left and told folks that I was coming back, the very first thing I heard was, you going back home to do that slave work? That was in 2009. And I never equated farming and slave work to be the exact same thing um, because I wasn't raised in that environment per se. I wasn't raised during slavery. So I, I didn't have that. However, I heard that for almost three straight years from people that were very well educated. Um, and I also even had that conversation with people that were not black and brown that were like, are you sure you wanna go back to the South and do that? Like a lot of, I think that's the first part of the healing of Americanization, right? Is to realize that I like how you just said what you said earlier, that you are using African and indigenous traditions to grow this, what you're growing. And a lot of times I think that people have uh, misconstrued the idea of what, we, what that ancestral knowledge means when you go, like I love compost and I get people all the time like, you use fish in your compost? Why do you do that? Da, da, da. And I was like, well, we were taught by the indigenous people that the only way those pilgrims survived was that fish head in that ear of corn. So something gotta be going on. And y'all wrote that how many years ago? Well, I think that still works now. And people use it all the time. And they're just like, oh my God, where did you get this compost from? And I was like, oh, it's just fish scrap, coffee grounds, wood chips and grass clippings, that's all it is. 
And so I think realizing that if you were to look inside first, you realize that that Americanization that people call or whatever is a false dichotomy, I think, because it, you just have to take a moment with yourself first and connect with whatever it is that you want to connect with. And that's even if you've been raised in the city all your life, which I hear that too. Like I've been in the city all my life. I don't know nothing about being in the country. I'm like, yeah, but you know what collard greens smell like, don't you? You know, you, you, you know what ham hocks smell like, you know what smoked turkey, you know what oxtail tastes like. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you like fried fish? Yeah, okay, well, like connect with that first, you know? So yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, I just, I get really. I think you've covered that. Let's, let's go to the next one. Oh, okay, no problem. No, no, I covered it, great. Um, I, I like this next one. Um, can you speak to the importance of connecting our farms and a larger conversation around food systems where production is just a part. I love this. What about second added value, for instance, distribution, um, reclaiming not only our food, our food systems, but also our food production? And how is that connected with reparations? Oh, that's a lot of layers right there. Yes, I mean, the short answer is yes, right? That, that right. we're not in isolation. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll give an example of one of the ways we're thinking about that in the Northeast. And this is, this is a, with a disclaimer that, you know, marketing distribution is not my expertise, which is why we partner. Um, so we had an idea in the Northeast amongst black centered farming organizations that it would be important to make sure that our rising generation farmers can be supported every step of the way to be successful. So we started a coalition working together. So the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust makes land available. The Black Farmer Fund makes capital available. Uh, Farm School NYC and Soul Fire Farm make training available. Corbin Hill Food Project aggregates and distributes, purchases food from the farmers, distributes it in New York City. Uh, Black Farmers United does policy advocacy. So when you add those things together, you have a, a microcosm of the food system and perhaps, you know, uh, maybe a stretch, but a scalable model of the ways that community-based institutions can work together from quote, sunshine to plate. I do think um, another, another way that we think about this zooming out to international is really following the lead of Via Campesina, which is an indigenous peasant led movement on six arable continents that's thinking about local and regionalized food systems. And in addition to being part of that political organizing, some of what we'll do is to support those farmers to do, um, I'll say like fair trade plus <laughs> uh, distribution of their products, things like moringa and mango and um, from the farmers in Haiti to be able to access international markets on their own terms. Um, so I think that's also a, you know, a scalable and important model of, of food systems beyond the hyperlocal. Wow, that was a lot. I'm excited. So, I'm, I, I want us to have a much longer conversation, but um, I have seen on, on the thread over here in the chat, are there programs like yours that teach the techniques you teach in Georgia or close by? So before I, before I use that as a question, I would like to ask, and not that you need to answer at this moment, but something for you to put into your uh, calendar calendar, so to speak, would you be interested in creating a soul fire farm uh, at Gilliard Farms um, this fall? So it's going to start getting cold up your way, right? And everybody can't be outside. However, it's still 70 something degrees here, you know? Um, that is one of the reasons we actually were able to get the Georgia Organics Conference about six years ago on Jekyll Island because it was February and it was 60 to 75 degrees. So if it's something that you would be interested in, I would uh, definitely be open to it. Um, and we will start laying it right now and we'll get farm to school to, to help us figure it all out. But I would love to host you um, 
part of Soul Fire Farm down here for however long you said the training needs to be. We got plenty of space. If we need to figure out um, tent cabins or something like that, we'll make all that work too. But I would really like to open up and because I, you know, a couple of things I keep seeing people put on here is partnership is key. Are we creating these, these, uh, these bigger things? And I've always wanted to do something with you, Leah. And um, like I said, I'm not putting you on the spot. You can say no right now, even, and it's not going to hurt me nor anybody, any of the attendees' feelings because they understand. But the reason I'm asking is that it is nice and warm here. Oh, and in the fall, there's no, there's not as many mosquitoes and all that other stuff down here too. So I'm trying to like pull you in a little bit, you know, even if it's like the week of Kwanzaa, Soul Fire Farm South and do the whole week of Kwanzaa and use all of, all of those principles <laughs> as part of the conversation. I know, right? I'm just like reeling, reeling, reeling. Like I, I'm- No, I, this I'm, is beautiful chef, because I will tell you that you probably had a I don't know, your ears ringing or something because we were just having our strategic conversation uh, as an organization, which is unfolding this year. You know, COVID has made us all reimagine who we are. And right. you know, like we were talking about in the, in the rehearsal, mm -hmm. you know, paring down what needs to go and focusing. And so, you know, people for a long time have been like, oh, Soulfire, you're gonna expand, you're gonna replicate. And, and to be real, we aren't trying to franchise, which is not what you're saying, no. uh, but we're like, no, we don't, the people in the South know what they need. We know what we need every, you know, we're happy to share and right. collaborate, but we don't need to be bigger. And so the idea that had come up is like, well, what if though, you know, like it's dope that people come up here, but we can only show a specific, a specific type of agriculture. We're in a cold season. We have a lot of fruits, this and that. But what if someone wants to learn ocean farming? What if someone wants to learn rice cultivation? We don't do very much of that. Right? Uh, hey, hey, I so, got you. So we were thinking, we were thinking, well, what if we did a collaborative program one or two every year at a farm in the South where we bring some of our folks, you have some of your folks, we do a few day workshop, people can come camp out, yes. local chef can cook, you know, yes. and then we kind of learn from each other. Exchange. Yes. So literally we were just talking about, I don't know if we'll have it together by the fall, but the short answer is yes. The okay. answer is yes. We will no do problem. it. We'll, we'll figure out I what am, makes sense. I mean, the, the the feed on here is like going crazy right now. <laughs> it would be amazing. Movie, right? <laughs> but I'm, I'm just going to say, if we if we have the right people committed to helping us, I think mm -hmm. that we could make those things happen. And, you know, your inaugural year is always the smaller year. So maybe only the 57 people that are participants right now get invited and we worry about everybody else later. I don't know. But, um, you know, one of those things is, you know, and I always have this conversation with people about the fact that if, if folks came down and got into rural America and really looked at farming, like stepped out of big cities, um, and there's nothing, no shade on urban farming, y'all. We need as many growers in the city as we do on the outside. Um, and I'm just saying, but if folks were to come down the rural and see more of what our rural farmers are doing, like where you're located um, in Petersburg and where we're located and things like that, they will definitely be able to figure out how to pull all those things together. My running joke is that I can get to Orlando, Florida and hang out with Mickey quicker than I can get to Atlanta because Atlanta's four and a half hours away and Orlando's only three. So like when people say, oh, how come you don't come to Atlanta and do more? And I'm like, I mean, I'm 29 miles from Florida. Why would I, why? help me out here like I could I can be in Miami you know in almost the same time as it takes to get to Tennessee so I'm just saying like we I see where we need to uh where we need to collaborate um I well heck we already got volunteers um we got folks uh, we got a young lady on here says I can drive a tractor so boom we can do some tractor driving and all that you know what I'm saying so I'm totally excited I I'm I'm just thankful that that we were able to get on here today. Um, but before we get down that full path of uh, Soul Fire Farm in the South and, uh, or Soul Fire Farm at Gilliard Farm, which would be just an amazing deal. Are there any other questions that anyone on here has that are brewing in your head? And then if not, Leah's gonna 
fire off some questions to me. Um, so, uh, oh, I see one. Uh, how about how far is food coming that reaches Atlanta? What if folks are willing to bring food from the South up toward to globe? That was one of the questions. I'm okay. not sure. Well, it's interesting when you talk about bringing food up from the South, if I'm catching you right, um, it's important to note that the first ever food hubs, which are institutions that aggregate produce in order to access wholesale markets, mm -hmm. actually came out of the Black church community. It was called yep. the shed behind the church, right? And so you mm -hmm. gather up the sweet potatoes or whatever you had, and then uh, get a truck and bring it up to the sister congregation along the trails of the great migration. And that was um, the beginning of, of food hubs. And so there's precedent for that. And I know that the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, I was just speaking to uh, Mr. Cornelius Blanding, and he was saying that some of their co-ops actually bring food all the way up to New York City, mm -hmm. uh, produce all the way up to New York City. So that's happening. And that is something we need to build upon because we do need our cultural foods up here in the cold mountains. Like y'all got to help us out with that. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. Well, I just put in just now to all the panelists and attendees uh, a new site that just came on um, late last year, beginning of this year. It's called Eat Okra. And what their main, eatokra.com, they're out of New York, but what their main thing is, is uh, connecting uh, Black-owned restaurants um, with, uh, and food trucks with other Black-owned businesses. And I was able to talk to uh, one of the, or actually both of the owners of Eat Okra um, prior to us coming on board for this conversation. And one of the things that we were able to, um, we didn't, we weren't able to get all the names, but from Miami, well, from my house to Poughkeepsie, New York is a 13, 14 hour drive. So that would be a, 23, 24 hour, hour, hour drive total. Um, so in an 18 wheeler, it would be a three day drive, right? However, um, cause it's only eight hours a day, but from Miami on I-95, we just took the corridor all the way up into New York. Um, there are over a hundred plus, uh, there's actually 250 plus farms up that corridor within an hour, hour and a half of I-95. That is a lot of farms. Mm -hmm. Just if, if we were just to think about it from, from kind of that standpoint. Um, so yeah, food can definitely be moved um, from where we are um, to the North and there's also, and vice versa. I think it's really about us connecting with other organizations like a Eat Okra, um, Accord of Globe and figuring out ways to to move some of those things. And also everyone, I want you to understand like, we have to think the power of the number, right? So it's not like I plant half, you know, a quarter acre of okra and think that I'm about to feed New York. That ain't happening. Like we need 20 acres of just okra to get up to New York for it to do anything sustainably or even 20 acres to just go to Atlanta or 20 acres to go to any of those other places. So when we're thinking about things like this, and we're thinking about feeding children, we also have to think about what are the USDA requirements? How much food are they supposed to have every day? How much things are they supposed to have? Because when you look at it, if it was just strawberries alone and the kids are supposed to have three ounces of strawberries and there's 300 kids in the school, like that's just one day, right? So that ends up being, and if I do the numbers right really quick on my calculator, just so people can kind of like hear the number, right? So we're saying uh, 300 kids times three ounces of strawberries divided by 16, that's 56, 57 pounds, right? Of fruit for that one day. If we multiply that out by five, that's 281 pounds for the week. And if we multiply that by four, that's 1,125 pounds a month of just, if we're just talking strawberries, right? And if we multiply that by 12, that's 13,500 pounds of just strawberries that we'd have to get out if, it, if we only use strawberries, you right. know what I'm saying? So when you're thinking about strawberries and blueberries and bananas and all these different fresh fruits, peaches and oranges and all of that, it, is, it looks daunting. You know, when you start hearing big numbers like that, it looks daunting. But I really like the idea of thinking about local, taking care of home first, 
and then the surplus being pushed out everywhere else. Because if home is taken care of, if the community is taken care of, if the people that are in that circle, that initial circle, whether, whether it's 25 miles or 150 miles, whatever your local looks like, um, if they are taken care of, then other things can happen. The, 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 as a group, you start to grow, um, which means that then we can grow more food. So when we're thinking about this, let's really think about community and being hyper-focused on local so that we can get to the point that we have so much surplus that we can send somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. So yeah. I'm looking at the organizers. I know we're pretty much at time. I don't know if at I can time. just ask Chef one question. Go ahead. Is that Go ahead. okay? All right, we'll just do one. Um, so I, I would love to hear you. I know you spent the whole day planting rice. And so <laughs> what is the cultural significance of rice for you? And what has been your experience you know, planting, harvesting, sharing this rice with communities? Yeah, so I am part of now the Jubilee Justice uh, nonprofit organization that is, um, for lack of better words, they are putting rice culture back into Black and Indigenous communities that, um, and focusing on historically significant food systems as a whole. And so that's actually how I'm, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm way behind. We had a, a super thunderstorm. It's been super rainy and it's just been super crazy here. So all the things that I wanted to do over a year and a half ago, I haven't, well, over a year and a half ago, I haven't been able to do because of COVID-19. And now this year with this opportunity, it's here. Well, the, the cultural significance is oftentimes people only talk about Carolina gold cough, um, Carolina gold rice, um, and totally forget that there are so many other rices that are out there. So we are in the process of planting uh, an arborio rice, a red rice, and a black rice here. Um, and culturally significant, I mean, Gullah Geechee folks are, 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 are big time rice growers. Um, we were brought here because of that skill set and that we knew how to grow rice. And so uh, I, being a what they call a freshwater Geechee, which means I'm inland, um, wanted to make sure that at some point in the career of this farm that I put rice um, on this land as a full production piece and not as what, like when I first started, I just tried to grow like a uh, not even a quarter of an acre. Like I just, I was like, I wonder if I can grow rice. And I, and I was able to get, grow the Carolina gold rice using the SRI method. So there's nothing being flooded. There's just a lot of water on the ground um, from time to time um, and, and all of that good stuff. However, um, it, I have been eating rice all my life as like part of a, an everyday meal. My sister still eats rice with a little bit of sugar, like it's a cereal. Um, because rice was, just to get people to understand, we could stretch a pot of lima beans with ham hocks in it for almost seven days when I was a kid. There wasn't, there wasn't always a lot of things, but that rice and them beans, oh, you know, like that was, that was it. Um, and I grew up eating it just like that. And then eating rice with just about every meal. Um, and so culturally significant is I'm in rice country. I grew up eating rice. Um, you know, I, my running joke with my sister and she was just laughing at me the other day. She was like, man, remember when people like, man, you know, you get you when you eat a lot of rice. And that used to be the conversation. Like folks are like, oh, y'all got rice. Oh, y'all must be Geechee. Like that was just a conversation um, just right off the rip all the time. And also, you know, one of the reasons that uh, from a even more on a global or national level, Georgia has one third of the marshland for the East Coast. The hundred miles of our coast is marshland because of um, rice culture and those dams allowing that fresh water and salt water to go in and out. Um, and so if you are in North Carolina and eat white shrimp, those white shrimp started in these estuaries. If you're in Florida and you eat white shrimp, those white shrimp started in our estuaries. 
Um, so, and then, you know, eating perlu, or for me, it was shrimp Creole, um, and just dishes that had rice in it all the time. Like we ate rice as much as we ate grits. It wasn't like grits or rice. Um, matter of fact, I, I, and I, I, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings It's from Georgia, but I just want you to know, Georgia is not known for shrimp and grits. That's a Charlestonian thing. Okay. Georgia is known for fish, stewed okra and tomatoes and grits. That was the way it was eaten um, here and down in this area. So, because we're, we are seafaring, but like we, we, you know, we did boils, right? And all of our boils and oh, a low country boil is not just supposed to have shrimp and sausage and corn and potatoes. It's always supposed to have crabs in it also. Well, that's the way I grew up eating it. That's the way it's been changed because of whatever. Um, but I just want you to know that the cultural relevance of rice to me is rice is supposed to be in everything. Like you're supposed to eat rice. And then you're not, and then I, I don't even think I understood that there was a difference between white rice and brown rice when I grew up because I don't even remember just eating white rice when I grew up either. So I think that there's also that part of uh, understanding uh, how to eat and, and how much of it to eat and where it fits in your diet um, also. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. This has been real, y'all. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Well, from our hearts to yours, um, from down south to up north, um, I appreciate all that you've done. I appreciate the time that Georgia Organics has allowed for us to uh, share with each other. Um, big hugs um, to you and your family. Um, and you all continue to be safe. And I am now going to turn this back over to Ms. Kimberly Deladon. Thanks, everyone. I just want to thank you all so much for sharing your passion and your wisdom, your soul fire with us and inspiring us to think about how our role in this food systems work can be one that is uh, works for change and creates a system that of mutual support for us all. And on behalf of Georgia Organics and the Farm to Early Care and Education Coalition and the Georgia Farm to School Alliance and our planning committee, I just really appreciate that you spent this time with us and shared yourselves with us today. Thank you. All right, and thanks to our audience for joining us. Yes, have a great day and big shout out to Farms to School Georgia Organics. Um, y'all keep it going, y'all. All right. See you soon, everybody. That's our show for today. On behalf of George Organics, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Atlanta Foodcast. Be sure you subscribe and stay tuned because we'll be back in another two weeks. If you want to read more about the Atlanta Foodcast and the guests on our show, visit atlfoodcast.com. To learn more about Georgia Organics and become a member, visit georgiaorganics.org. Thanks for joining us. This is your reminder to eat well and stay local.